Hey there, Deviants. Uh, welcome back for another wonderful week for a terrible tale here at Dark and Devious. Yes, welcome back, everybody. Patrick, I love your spontaneous intros. That was that was really a good one. Thank you. Yeah, I um I normally don't like plan them ever. Uh, <laughs> whereas you're the opposite one. You want to sit and think. What do I want to say? I'm like, I'm just gonna go in, and whatever falls out of my mouth is gonna <laughs> happen, and that's what we're going with. <laughs> oh my gosh, there are definitely some times where I have overthought it and spent like five ten minutes trying to think of like something that's going to take five and a half seconds to say <laughs> that's very true uh, um do yeah, I you can attest to that yes and do i judge you for that no um <laughs> i've come to accept it <laughs> oh it's all in the in the name of of a better podcast i hope so <laughs> um but yeah welcome back chris it's been a hot minute yes uh of course we want to start out at the top here thanking it was christine right yes christine and thank you for stepping in and being a guest host i know we've done this once before when the, the roles were reversed where i had a special guest host with hannah and i just love that we are able to do that and it's fun to bring on you know other people you know we're not we're not super rigid around here it's it's fun to share the hosting joy Yes, exactly. And Christine's been telling me like, ever since she's been on that, uh, she'll be like, when I meet new people, I'm like, oh, I'm a podcast star now. Uh, um, perhaps you've heard of me? <laughs> from my one episode where I just broke records. <laughs> so I know you also have something exciting to share um, for why you weren't here last week. Right. So last week was a wild week for me because I was singing with the Twin Cities Gay Men's Chorus and uh, the concert went phenomenally. I thought it was a really great concert. For those who didn't, don't know that this last concert was all about mental health and neurodiversity. So it, it was a really a really special concert for a lot of people. And there were a lot of really great emotional moments in this whole concert. So it was really cool. Uh, we actually got to work with some high schoolers who came in and they sang with us for a couple songs and had some songs of their own. And we also had a wonderful guest soloist um, who is this gorgeous gorgeous soprano from hawaii uh she was amazing and uh yeah everything went really well so it was nice to uh put all my focus on that and not have to worry about the podcast for a week but i'm glad to be back here getting it getting my hands into everything again mm -hmm. well that's really exciting that's really cool i didn't know you had guests all the way from hawaii that's awesome 
I know I was really surprised, uh, especially because in mid-March it was so fucking cold here and and I was chatting with with the soloist and and I was like, oh, so are you are you local around here? And uh, you know, wondering where we had gotten her from. And she was like, oh no, I live in Hawaii. And I'm like, oh my gosh, did we like lie to you to get you to come here in the middle of, of what is still kind of wintry weather? <laughs> but I, she was a good sport about it. I, I think she uh, was more excited to be here doing the music that she was doing with us rather than worried about the weather. So thank goodness. Yeah. Very cool. Very fun. <laughs> I think we should organize a trip to go visit her in Hawaii now. I mean, I, I will go with you. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll tag along with your choir. Um, well, that's fun. Cool. I'm glad you had a great uh, concert. That's something you're very passionate about. So good for you. Well, uh, absolutely. And you had some exciting podcast news. We have some new listeners for mm. first time in a little while. First time in a little while. And I'm really excited about this uh, new listener because it's in a part of the world where I didn't think we would reach. Um, and I would like to welcome our newest listeners from Pakistan. Thank you for tuning in and welcome. Uh, that's really fun. And then um, speaking of that region of the world and something that I wanted to address anyways is last week was the start of Ramadan. Um, so I want to wish all of our Islamic uh, listeners a Ramadan Mubarak, which is happy Ramadan in Arabic. Um, so yeah, so everyone who is practicing right now, I hope it's a great season um, filled with lots of, you know, good good time spent with the community and also you know those good deeds that you give back during this time so yeah that's that's all I really wanted to say I don't have any personal updates um work has been eating me alive um <laughs> and then also why not add on hosting a podcast and being on Pflugerville pride board planning this year's pride and also going to personal appointments, which I'm having to schedule during my work time. I am drowning, but I am happily staying afloat. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I could take the reins on this one. So you can sit back and and listen and comment uh, this time around and not have to worry about doing research on top of everything else that you're already doing. I know it's it's never ending. Um, and actually like, I'm a big mental health advocate, so I don't care saying it's on air. My therapist, uh, in our last meeting, she was like, do we need to talk about not doing so much? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, maybe that's not a bad idea. Um, but yes, I love everything I do though. So it's hard to not do it. Oh, I totally understand that. Uh, you know, someone who juggles two jobs and then also does outside activities. And I love to spend time with my friends. It's, it's a lot to juggle, but uh, it is important to realize when you need to step back from one thing, you know, I've definitely had times where it's like, I just like, you know what? I just need to spend a night at home and I'm not going to go out tonight. Exactly. You know, just because you need that time to recharge. But yeah, you totally, totally. 
And, and you know what? Everybody that I've had to do that with has always been super understanding. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, there we go. There's your little mental health moment with yes. Chris and Patrick. Yes. <laughs> if you like more of what you hear, please go to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think there's anything else we really need to share this week unless we're forgetting something. Yeah, I feel like we got straight to the point this this time. We're not going to meander around. We've got a story that I've been um, kind of brewing up for several weeks. Uh, I've read this wonderful true crime book as my source for it, and I'm really excited to share it with you. All right. Well, it's been a while. Four episodes, in fact, since I've heard a Chris tale. Right. I know, which is what you pointed out before we started. <laughs> um, but I'm more than happy to do that many episodes in a row and also really happy to hear what you have cooked up for us this week. All right. So today's story has the makings of a true Hollywood crime drama. It starts with the hopeful rise of a Midwestern girl who would do anything to get out of her circumstances and ends with a tra- with a tragic and suspicious high society murder. Ooh, I was going to ask when you said um, Midwestern girl, are you talking about moi? <laughs> no, this is a different Midwestern girl. Um, okay. <laughs> but it doesn't end there, though. The story is further complicated by an interloper who felt compelled to insert himself into the story, someone whose shadow looms large in the field of true crime. And then, to add on an extra dash of spice, there are cameos in the story from America's prominent families and even the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. So today we'll be talking about Anne Woodward and the murder of her husband, Billy, and her infamous brush with the legendary writer and social troublemaker, Truman Capote. Hmm. So the source for this episode is the new book, Brit Cruelty by Roseanne Montillo, a well-researched volume that brilliantly weaves the lives of Anne Woodward and Truman Capote together until they fade Fatefully, almost said fatally, (laughs) until they fatefully cross paths. And in the end, no one comes out of this story unscathed. And it proves to be a story about the true price of wealth and fame. So I know. So just so Patrick, you can see it. This is the book here. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's only available in hardcover right now. um, But it is definitely one worth adding to your true crime collection for anybody who's interested in expanding their horizons in that field. Uh, this one was a really good read. Uh, I feel like I went through it pretty quick and um, there's a lot more in there that even I'll be able to talk about because uh, they really go in depth on some of these these figures that are in the story, these fixtures. Yeah. So uh, it's definitely worth a read even after you've listened to this episode. Okay. So in the early 1950s, there was certainly no one more stylish than Anne Woodward, an opinion that had been touted repeatedly in the New York society columns. She seemingly had it all. Her husband Billy's family had made their fortune in banking, 
and had a and they also had a prosperous horse racing farm called Bel Air Stud in Bowie, Maryland. Again, everything always comes back to Maryland somehow. <laughs> and I know that it's not Bowie, thanks to a uh, uh, a certain listener. Okay. <laughs> our uh, little our mis- Mar- mystery, our Maryland, our Maryland expert. <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> Um, so the the Bel Air Stud in Bowie, Maryland, that brought the world the legendary racehorse Nashua. So this was a very famous racehorse that came from that farm. Now she enjoyed a spacious home on Long Island, where many of New York society's upper crust kept homes and estates, and was also able to explore the world on extravagant trips, notably a tiger hunting trip to India. Well, I don't like that. I know there's there's in the photo section of the book, it shows a picture of her like with the with like the dead tiger that she shot. And like, that's just sad that Mm. I'm disappointed. But it was the 50s. That's what like millionaires did back then and doesn't make it right. But it was a different time. It was, you know, a little more common back then. But behind the scenes. Anne had anything but a perfect life. She struggled to pay her own way until she landed the opportunity of a lifetime with a marriage to Billy Woodward. But once they were wed, their life together was anything but ideal. Their marriage proved to be fraught with conflict and accusations and ultimately ended one fateful October evening in 1955 when Billy was gunned down by none other than his own wife, Anne. Wow. Right. Um, I okay, I will wait. I wanna know like <laughs> Yeah, this, you need to see how this unfolds. I was like, was this murder or was it self-defense? Mm-hmm. I need to know. There's a lot of questions to be had. So Truman Capote was fascinated by this murder in high society. He had been a bit of a social climber himself, starting off in rural Monroeville, Alabama, notably growing up alongside another famous author, Harper Lee. Ooh, yeah. And and it's funny because they were actually really good friends, like lifelong friends. Uh, and he worked his way up to being one of the who's who of the New York arts and culture scene. He had noteworthy hits with books like Other Voices, Other Rooms in 1948, Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1958, and arguably his biggest success in Cold Blood in 1965, which chronicles a highly disturbing Kansas murder that is told in what became Capote's unique blend of fact and embellished storytelling. But the heights of success brought on by In Cold Blood was a double-edged sword. The pressure to match or surpass his masterwork was overwhelming, even with some tantalizing subject matter before him. Capote loved surrounding himself with the most alluring women at the top of the social stratosphere. His inner circle of prominent socialites were known as his swans. And his adoration and fascination over them and their lives would be his undoing. So there's a little, a little taste of, of our, our characters. That, yeah. So I'm wondering uh, 
how did he treat his swans or Mm -hmm. was it more like the swans were just so loving like some of those people that murder their you know their role models like the woman Mm -hmm. who murdered selena you know it's like which one is it (laughs) now first let's get to know Anne a little bit The woman who would later become Anne Eden Woodward was born Evangeline Lucille Crowell on December 12th, 1915 in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Her mother, Ethel, was a strong-willed and educated woman who absolutely refused to conform to the conventions expected of her by men. She earned a bachelor's degree in social science through correspondence courses provided by the University of Kansas and became a teacher herself, working through motherhood uh, when, at the time, it was expected of her to be a stay-at-home mom. Her husband, Jesse Claude, was not exactly an ambitious go-getter, making a life for his family out on the range. He tried many fields of work, but found himself not succeeding significantly in any of them. While Ethel always sought to better herself and improve her lot in life, Jessie Claude seemed content skating by on just good enough. Their differences no doubt irked each other, but Ethel couldn't be stopped. Through much of Anne's younger childhood, her mother was off teaching. When she was offered an opportunity to become a principal of a small schoolhouse, She lied to her employers that she was a widow and left Anne at home. She then took another teaching job at a tiny frontier town called Liberal, which was a 32-mile commute each day, which seemed extravagant and scandalous at the time. Jesse Claude could not keep his wife at home, and he felt his wife was getting a negative reputation for going out on her own like that. Jesse Claude pleaded for Ethel to come back to help him on the farm, but his pleas were met with fierce action. Ethel packed up her and her daughter and took her to the small town of Johnson, where she began teaching high school. She continued to send financial help back to Jesse Claude and visited every few months with Anne in tow so she could visit with her father. I'm very impressed with Ethel. I mean, she's like at that time, she's like before feminism, feminism was like really a thing. She was paving the way. And then she even packed up and left on her own, which is a big move back then. Oh, my gosh. So scandalous. But yet she still was in love with him. So she still wanted to support him financially. That's. And yeah, I don't know if it's because she was in love with him or because she felt obligated because they were married. Um, I'm kind of wondering if maybe she was kind of hoping that Jesse Claude would eventually find his calling or like kind of get his act together. Yeah, maybe. Um, And but it it is really kind of refreshing to hear of a woman at this time period. You know, this is we're we're talking like the like the early 1920s, like maybe late 19 teens even where she's like doing her own thing. Like education is really important to her. And, 
you know, there aren't a whole lot of opportunities for women in a lot of fields at this moment in time. Um, so being a school teacher is a great option to like earn money for yourself and, uh, you know, work for your community, like make the community a better place. So I think that's really admirable. So Ethel is taking Anne back to visit Jesse Claude occasionally. But at that point, it was pretty clear that the marriage was not going to last much longer. You know, this whole visitation thing was kind of a, a last ditch effort probably to make things work or to maybe give Anne uh, some kind of small sense of normalcy, mm -hmm. ha having access to both parents. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of the writing was on the wall that this marriage was headed for the end. So not long after, Jesse Claude asked Ethel for a divorce and split everything pretty much down the middle, which again is also refreshing that it sounds like there wasn't a whole lot of fighting over anything mm -hmm. that it was like, okay, we were married and we were in it together and we're splitting everything up 50 50 and we're just going to go our separate ways so you know that's pretty much all you can do fresh start for both of you the only question remaining was what to do with Anne. it was november of 1923 when the divorce was finalized and Anne was eight years old Anne ended up staying with ethel but her decision would cost her credibility with her family and community but still, Ethel didn't care what anyone else thought. You know, so here she would be this single mom working on her own with a child that just was not done back then. No. Like, it just makes you look like, it'd be like, oh, is she some kind of, like, woman of ill repute? Like, what did she do to drive her husband away? You know, mm -hmm. people start talking, which is so dumb because... You know, there are lots of reasons for marriages not to work out. And exactly. It's not necessarily because someone, one person was good or one person was bad. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people just don't connect. So after the divorce, she moved Anne back to Pittsburgh, Kansas to teach high school. Meanwhile, and also that she did have a, a support system of she had some relatives that okay. lived in Pittsburgh. So that okay. also probably factored in um, and probably allowed her a little more flexibility to in her teaching um, while also raising Anne. Uh, but it was probably a little bit of the like family raising her too. Sure. So meanwhile, Anne was left feeling neglected, her mother too busy chasing a career and simultaneously battling bouts of depression brought on by the loss of her son, four-year-old four Jesse Claude Jr. from several years earlier. Um, and Jesse Claude Jr. Uh, passed away from a childhood illness, which mm. was not uncommon, especially out in rural areas and this part of America mm -hmm. at this, this moment in time. So as a result, Anne would never know a stable home as she was passed between relatives. She lived in eight different homes between her mother, grandmother, and aunts. 
So that's a really shaky childhood. Just very just, much so. It's a it's a rough start for Anne. So Ethel effectively ended Jesse Claude's relationship with Anne. So this is a little heartbreaking. Uh, so she she poisoned her against her father by telling her how he refused to send them money to help support themselves. Now, in reality, Jesse Claude was struggling to make a living working on the on the railroad and could barely support himself, much less an ex-wife and child. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's kind of two sides to that where like, yeah, he's not sending money, but it's because he's barely getting by himself. Now, and Anne's father regularly regularly wrote to his daughter, but sadly, his letters were intercepted by her mother and destroyed before Anne even knew they existed. Oh, that's so sad. isn't that so sad? Like yeah. he could have been writing the sweetest things to her, like checking in on her, like seeing what was going on in her life, but her mother just was not letting those communications mm-hmm. go through. And this wasn't a time where you could just easily pick up the phone and call someone just to like say, hey, how you doing? This was still the era of you would write letters to pass your information on. And Right, exactly. And if she wasn't getting the letters, she probably just thought that her her father didn't even care about her. Right, totally. Now, as, as far as Anne was concerned, the narrative her mother had been feeding her was true. And her father was not interested in taking care of her or maintaining a relationship. Jesse Claude eventually found his way to Detroit, Michigan, where he became a trolley car conductor. Uh, Though his income continued to remain modest. Anne never again spoke to her father after their parting, though Jesse Claude always imagined that his Angie had grown up and escaped small-town life and become the actress Eve Arden. And while this was not the case, Anne did briefly go into the entertainment industry. Uh, putting, Putting the habits that she imitated from the starlets in the movies to good use. At age 11, Anne was already dreaming of a life on the big screen, far from the poverty of rural Kansas. It was her big dream, and just like her mother, she was determined to find a way to get ahead in this world. So I kind of love this little girl version of Anne who idolizes movie stars and goes around. Like, she would go and see a movie, and then she would be, like, imitating, like, the beautiful, like, sexy ladies on, in you know, the the romantic interests of these movies. Yeah, and, for sure. Um, and it's it's kind of cute, kind of endearing, uh, and is actually ends up being kind of a little secret weapon that she uses her whole life. So in 1926, Ethel found herself charmed by a man named Percy Victor Jordan, who was impressed by a series of lectures that she had given on the history of Kansas and the United States. Percy seemed to value Ethel's intellect and soon convinced her to marry. But as soon as they were wed, Percy expected her to give up lecturing and pursuing higher education. 
It seemed that he was intent on controlling his wife's life, which Ethel was certainly not on board with. After Ethel gave birth to a stillborn baby girl, the grief of losing her son came rushing back. Anne was a bit older this time, but uh, no more capable of comforting her grieving mother. When a divorce between Ethel and Percy was finally granted, it was nothing short of a relief to pack up and make a fresh start somewhere else. The two of them landed in Kansas City, Missouri, where Ethel hoped to continue in the education field. But no one was looking to hire a school mom from rural Kansas in the big city. Ethel's dreams of working in education were dashed, and instead, she ended up buying some cars and establishing a taxi service. That's kind of impressive. I like. I have got to hand it to Ethel. She is so industrious, and she always finds a way to land on her feet and keep going forward. Now, life wasn't glamorous in the taxi business. Their fleet was small, and the drivers gave her no respect. But somehow they were able to squeak by in Depression-era middle America. As Ethel struggled to provide for herself and her daughter, Anne couldn't help but fantasize when reading the society pages of the newspapers. She studied the names and places of who was who and where the hotspots were among the wealthy and glamorous. She may have been sitting in the back of a garage in Kansas City doing her schoolwork then, but her heart was already dining with the well-to-do in New York City or Los Angeles. As Anne blossomed into a beautiful teenager, she couldn't help imagining that she could be discovered and make it big, just like one of her favorite movie actresses, Joan Crawford, who had come from nothing and reached the heights of Hollywood royalty. She lightened her already blonde hair to more acutely imitate the Hollywood style of the time, and paired with her newly filled out curves and sparkling green eyes, Anne was an absolute vision. She used her looks to full effect and flirted with her mother's customers. This is also when, at age 22, she changed her name from Angeline to Anne Eden, which she thought sounded much more sophisticated, which honestly totally sounds like a movie star name. It really does. And uh, before we move on, Mm -hmm. this is reminiscent to me of Meryl Monroe. Uh, who was born uh, Norma Jean Baker. She grew up in a very uh, unstable home environment, in and out of foster care, uh, you know, moved around a lot by her mom. And she would go to the movie theaters and she would imitate the actresses and escape into that world. And Mm -hmm. she too, brunette, um, lightened her hair and went to do modeling jobs and everyone was just blown away by her. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the beginnings of these two women's lives are um, uncannily similar. I know it's a really, uh, a really fascinating story. And I, I don't know. I think we all kind of love that rags to riches storyline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it so compelling. And it's just amazing how it actually happened for these people 
when for so many it doesn't work out right correct these are the exceptions not the rule mm-hmm. so as a young woman she also found work at a department store where she caught the eye of an executive who thought she would be a perfect model for the store's advertisements she enthusiastically agreed to the opportunity now back at the store's main office Anne's headshots found their way to John Robert Powers, who owned a well-known modeling agency in New York. Before she had even heard back from Powers as to whether he would take her on as a model, Anne made a plan to head out to New York and meet him in person. This is, again, the like the absolute gumption it takes <laughs> to be like, before you even hear back as to whether you might even possibly have work out there, you just like, I'm going to pick up everything and I'm going to go out there. I'm going to talk to them in person. Uh huh. It's I mean, like, that's what, that's oh, what it takes ahead. sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. it's much harder to be turned away if you're standing in front of someone. Exactly. And I, I feel like this is something that, you know, probably doesn't work anymore <laughs> or it's very hard to make work in today's day and age but i i feel like all the all of these people who had big breaks in like the the 20th century basically were the people who were like i'm gonna wait in your waiting room until you agree to see me mm -hmm, exactly so ethel wasn't thrilled about the idea you know, sending her young daughter off to the big city. Right. Uh, but there was nothing she could do to stop her from making the trip and chasing her dreams. I mean, after all, Anne was a grown woman and she could make her own decisions for herself. You know, you and know? I'm sure Ethel also, you know, kind of saw her as a mirror, you know, because she went off and did what she wanted. She followed her dreams. So I'm sure she, in a way, she didn't want her to go. But I bet she was also proud. Yeah, I would like to think that too. Because, uh, you know, obviously Ethel was a super strong figure at who was just like, I am not about to follow somebody else's plan for me. I'm going to chart my own path. Right. And I'm kind of hoping that she encouraged Anne to do that too. Mm -hmm. Me that, too. Like, you you yeah. need to chart your own path. You don't need to follow what everybody else is telling you to do. Right. So, and this is, this next part is just such a sweet gesture. So Anne packed up her belongings and with a last minute gift of $400 from her mother, she drove away from the taxi lot bound for New York City. So her mom actually had like stashed away all this money and, and the way it was described in the book was it was a lot of like crumpled fives and ones that like so like small bills yeah like that, and she saved them and gave that to her daughter so that she had a chance to chase her dreams uh which i think is just absolutely heartwarming moment yeah for sure and that was a lot of money back then so much and it must have taken a long time for her to save up four hundred dollars from the taxi business yeah, I'm doing a little research right now, and that is equivalent to about $6,000 today. 
holy crap like that that could definitely get you a couple of of months in new york yeah, city probably. exactly and immediately loved new york uh, it was a diverse and massive city and she loved exploring it she hit the ground running and attended auditions met neighbors networked and went out for drinks with the new people she met so this sounds super cool like i, I feel like this is way harder to do uh, today because mm. i know when like i went to new york it was really hard to it's not like you could just meet new people <laughs> like right. like it wasn't just something that just happened easily i think people are just a little bit more closed off today yeah we're, we are all self absorbed in our phones basically <laughs> right uh so i she was living her best life and meeting everybody that she could and networking um and then one day she marched into the offices of the powers modeling agency dressed in her best and most flattering attire only to find herself having to stick it out in the waiting room so the, and of course, this waiting room was filled with like a bunch of other beautiful young women also dressed in their best, waiting just the same as she was. So it's kind of like, oh, honey, you're not the only one here who has big dreams. Right, exactly. She expected Mr. Powers to be waiting for her, but there were loads of other women waiting for their big chance too. Undaunted, Anne continued to return to the agency day in and day out until she finally ran into Mr. Powers in person. And the way they described it in the book, too, is like those other faces in the waiting room would change every day. So there were other people who wanted the same thing that she wanted, but they weren't as tenacious as she was. Mm -hmm. Like She was, she was willing. Yeah, she was determined. She was willing to go back every single day until someone was would see her whereas the other people gave up so mm -hmm. like kudos to you Anne. you you held on and it paid off it was a gutsy move one that powers seemed to like because he agreed to give her a shot he saw a future for her in modeling for print ads but Anne had her sights set higher still she saw this as a stepping stone not a final destination. She was climbing the first rungs of the ladder of success. The money that she earned from her modeling gigs allowed her to afford a small apartment of her own. With this newfound independence, she was able to audition for plays way off Broadway. And while she didn't get any starring roles, she did manage to get enough acting work to fine-tune her acting chops, and this also introduced her to agents and producers. She worked hard to make her dream of stardom a reality, but privately, she suffered paralyzing self-doubt that would bring her to tears. By age 25, she had been living in the city for three years. She underwent a nose job, took dance lessons, grooming sessions, Everything to make her more appealing, but still the next step up in society evaded her. So again, doesn't this sound like Marilyn Monroe a little bit too? Like 
air of confidence, but not getting on the noticed. inside. On the inside, well, also not getting noticed, but uh, but also on the inside, doubting yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marilyn Monroe, even at the height of her fame, she was extremely nervous and self conscious on movie sets. Mm. Like, even though she had such big fame, she was so insecure. Now, in the 1930s, Anne got a big break in a traveling dance company. Once again, she felt like she was following her idol, Joan Crawford's footsteps. The troupe began touring the country, and she was excited to reconnect with her mother when the troupe came to Kansas City. She had been so busy building up her career in New York City that she had not had time to visit her mother over the, over the last several years. When Anne got there, she was shocked to see her mother in terrible, failing health. She rushed her mother to a doctor since she could actually afford it, which again, like, let's remember a time where, yeah, if you didn't have the money to pay for a doctor, you just didn't see a doctor. Yeah, like, and also a reminder that Healthcare shouldn't work this way. If you need a doctor, you should just be able to have one. Right? Yeah. You should maybe uh, not have to pay to continue living. <laughs> right? I've it's never like... heard it phrased so much better. <laughs> right? Like, uh, I shouldn't have to, like, feed a dollar into the machine just to continue living. Uh, all the while... She was wondering if her mother's condition was caused from years of anxiety, smoking, and the sleepless nights, wondering about how she was going to get by. When the doctor was fin finished examining Ethel, it was a grim diagnosis. She had a rare lung disease that was normally found in cattle called M. bovis, which is a type of tuberculosis. Treatment options were limited. Anne chose to move her mother to a hospital in New York, New York City where she could at least be kept moderately comfortable and be close to Anne. The hospital bills almost completely wiped out Anne's savings. Again, this is not how healthcare should work. <laughs> uh, she had to give up her apartment in exchange for a smaller studio to save money. And between the scrimping and her mother's poor health, plunged her into her own depression. Furthermore, she needed to find a steady job that would allow her to work at night and spend time with her mother during the day. Her prayers were answered at a club called Fifi's Monte Carlo, a high-end nightlife spot near the famed El Morocco. Anne found a job there as a dancer and it is this job that set Anne on the trajectory of the rest of her life. Okay, so I'm uh, I'm curious to hear uh, if this new job and her new life course, I'm, I imagine it's going to lead to something bad, but I want to know, I'm sure there's some good things that come first. Oh, it definitely gets very interesting. That's for sure. But before we go on to the rest of Anne's life, uh, we have to talk about the other star of this episode. Uh, so our other star of this episode shares a rather interesting parallel to Anne's life. 
So Truman Capote, before he was Truman Capote, was born Truman Streckfus Persons on September 30th, 1924 in New Orleans, Louisiana. His mother, Lily Mae Falk, was not what you would call a natural mother. At every chance she got, she would hand Truman off to relatives, which was especially convenient when she settled down with family in Monroeville, Alabama. Lily May, much like Anne, was pretty and had a lifelong obsession with getting away from her small town life and obtaining the wealth and easy living she desired. She too looked at the starlets on the big screen as role models and sought to imitate their demeanor to catch the attention of men. She was a beauty queen who uh, even was awarded the title of Miss Alabama and at the age of 16, her, her looks won her the attention of an older man, 26-year-old Arch Persons, which, uh, t- I mean, 10 years between like a 26 and 36-year-old, not creepy. But between a 16 and a 26-year-old, that's a little creepy. That's creep. But I guess they liked each other well enough because the two married in August of 1923. And Lily May got pregnant with Truman nearly right away. Despite teenage pregnancy, she still imagined that Arch would be the one to carry her away to her dreams of a better life for herself. She saw her future somewhere exciting and bustling like New Orleans or New York City. So this reminds you of of someone. It sounds a lot like Anne. Maybe. Sadly for Arch, he fell short of expectations. He came from a good family with firm finances and business know-how backing them up, but Arch seemed not to possess a single shred of these qualities. So Arch just had absolutely no business acumen. Um, He came from a family that was well off, um, but he didn't inherit any of those skills to create his own wealth. Gotcha. And his parents weren't too keen on financing his life either. It wasn't until after the honeymoon that Lily Mae realized what a dud her husband was and that he would not be able to afford the kind of lifestyle she was hoping for. Arch got by on an allowance provided by his mother and was known to save money by eating canned food at every meal. And on top of it, like... He wasn't even hot. <laughs> <laughs> like they talk about how people were kind of like, well, why did this pretty young thing end up going out with Arch? Like he's not that attractive. Like you think that she would go with someone that he still would... lives on an allowance as a grown man. Yeah, um, it's kind of pathetic and like eats food out of a can all the time. Just I mean, there's not there's nothing wrong with being frugal with groceries. Oh, that's Don't get true. Me wrong. <laughs> I think that is fine. I'm not gonna judge him for canned food. <laughs> but getting an allowance from his mom and in his twenties, yeah, that's a bit much. Right. It's like you married a sixteen year old and then you're like trying to save money 
I wonder if from your they compared their allowances. Who got more? <laughs> the teenager or the full-grown adult? Oh, gosh. That is, it's just really sad. Um, Sorry, Arch, but I, I feel like this wasn't a great move for you. Now, one would think that a marriage like this would come crashing down all at once. But instead, Lily May and Arch slowly drifted apart. Motherhood brought Lily May no joy, and her pregnancy was seen as an inconvenience to her. Just a few years into little Truman's life, in 1930, his parents went their separate ways and left their son in the care of Lily May's cousins in Monroeville, Alabama, where Truman would fine-tune his storytelling abilities and gain inspiration for many of his works to come. Lily May, meanwhile, went off to New York City to aspire to climb the social ladder, and Arch went to the Mississippi River to work on steamships. Now, during this crucial period of growing up, Truman ended up in the middle of a dysfunctional family where his mother bounced from lover to lover in New York, and his father floundered trying to make a living for himself across the South. Truman did find his enjoyment in the in the small town, though, despite his absent parents. He relished in the art of gossip and loved getting involved and hearing about his family's squabbles, which would become a lifetime pastime. And beside him, always he had his friend Harper Lee. Now, both of these future legendary writers would draw on their experiences growing up to create their respective masterworks. Growing up, Truman was a bit of a delicate little boy, shall we say, and he did not care to tangle with the boys who might wrestle and fight. You'd be more likely to find Truman, who was on the smaller side for his age, reading or daydreaming of somewhere more glamorous, far from Monroeville. Life wasn't easy for a Nellie book-smart kid in a small rural town, but once he discovered his talent for writing, the world opened up to him. Lily May, meanwhile, had an inauspicious start in New York. She began husband hunting while working as a waitress in a restaurant near Wall Street. This, all the while, still married to Arch Persons. Arch, on the other hand, was still trying to scheme his way to his own fortune and wanted to win Lily Mae back. This is absolutely the inspiration for Truman's book, Breakfast at Tiffany's, by the way. Like, the character in like the the Holly Golightly character that is played by Audrey Hepburn in the movie. Uh-huh. Like her her like before name is L- uh Lula May, which is only like a letter different from Lily May. Yeah. Like he's not even trying to like to to mask this very very well. That's all I'm going to say about that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So Arch's get-rich-quick schemes never panned out, though, and he would never win his wife back because she so strongly desired wealth and comfort. 
Both of them would occasionally come back to Monroeville and visit Truman, but neither ever stayed very long. Then one day, a Wall Street man named Joseph Garcia Capote walked into Lily May's restaurant and fell madly in love with her. She was enchanted with him too. He was exotic and well off. So she was ready to jump into his arms if it meant finally getting the lifestyle she felt she deserved. Which it should be noted to uh, Joe Capote, not the most attractive guy in, on the face of the earth, let's just say. Um, so here, Lily May was, was willing to sacrifice maybe physical attraction for social comfort. I mean, also, maybe he was just very charismatic, right? I mean... That's true. I mean, he definitely... I mean, I've been watching has... Love is Blind season four. <laughs> so you don't always need to date someone that you think is a supermodel. That is fair. If my train wreck found someone, then <laughs> anyone can. <laughs> now, with stabi stability and comfort so close at hand... It was now finally time to pull the plug on Arch. She rushed to secure a formal divorce from him and even went so far as to claim that Arch occasionally beat her. And while it was true that he had sometimes uh, given her a smack, it seems that she had played it up a bit to win her some sympathy points. So I, I, I also feel like at this time, it probably wasn't, out of the ordinary for there to be you know a little bit of domestic violence going on at home and it's yeah acceptable because yeah because that was the it was a man's world yeah then um it's it's a very like old outdated way of thinking mm -hmm. uh, and and so it may not have been quite as extreme as lily may had kind of claimed um, it was enough to win her some major points and helped her secure her divorce. Mm. So on November 9th, 1931, the divorce was finalized, though neither one appeared genuinely interested in caring for Truman. Like, I just think of this as from a child's perspective, like this had to have affected Truman his entire life that you have two parents and neither one of them really want you. Right. I mean, thankfully it sounds like he had uh, cousins and like other relatives that were at least willing to take care of him. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a, like a special kind of hurt that comes from being unwanted by parents, I think. Right. Yeah, for sure. The custody agreement ended up ha having Truman live with his mother during the school year for about nine months and then spend the summers with his father. In the end, Truman continued to spend most of his time in Monroeville with his extended family. But then in 1935, there was a major development. Lily May, who now went by Nina since she moved to the city, so again, reinventing herself yeah taking on a new persona new name um so lily may aka nina had married joe capote 
And Joe legally adopted Truman, which is actually like kind of admirable because I I feel like a lot of the times, especially in this time period that we're talking about, a man who marries a woman who's divorced, someone doesn't necessarily want to raise some other man's child. Very true. And I think that's very easy to write off that it's like, oh, not my kid, not my problem. Yeah. But it seems like he was actually genuinely interested in um, being here and like being an actual father to Truman. I mean, that shows how much he loved. Um, now, now Nina. Nina. <laughs> Nina. It shows yeah. how much he loves Nina, right? Yeah. So Truman took on his new last name and came to New York where he attended a private boarding school. So here he is. He's going from like rural Alabama to a New York boarding school. Like talk about big changes happening all at once. And big upgrade in lifestyle change. Oh, I'm sure. So Joe ended up being the most stable and considerate parent he had ever had, and he worked to make Truman's life more settled for him. Nina was delighted by this development, and she felt she had finally achieved all she had ever wanted. The family moved several times, which unfortunately enhanced Truman's loneliness. Nina was also completely focused on Joe, and her neglect for her son was palpable. In addition, she had also developed a drinking problem which had her permanently set to either ambivalence or anger when it came to Truman. Like, there was no love setting on that dial. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate. Because mm-hmm. again, it just is like, mom's not dishing out the love at all. It's She's totally focused on Joe and satisfying him and putting all of her energy into that relationship and then not getting any not giving anything to her son yeah it's a it's a different form of abandonment Mm -hmm. so the great tragedy of truman's relationship with his mother is that she never truly loved him or hated him and in turn truman could never fully love or hate her in return she would remain a mythic figure looming in the background of her son's work most notably coming forth as the main character in in his novel breakfast at tiffany's Uh, as her alcoholism intensified she and joe fought more frequently joe had cheated on nina and the discovery only drove her deeper into drinking and she took her anger out on her son But despite his family falling apart around him, he managed to carve out a space for himself as a talented writer. Now, Truman had scored some early buzz with a short story that had been published called Miriam. After that, he began a novel called Summer Crossing, but ended up shelving that and instead completed Other Voices, Other Rooms, which became his first big critical hit. At the first sign of success, Truman expected the doors of the literary world to fly open. He pulled the same spunky young hotshot routine that Anne had pulled at the modeling agency. 
He walked into Mademoiselle magazine and insisted on seeing the fiction editor, George Davis. Davis was busy, though, when Truman called. So he sat patiently in the waiting room until Mr. Davis became available. While Truman was prying open the doors of the halls of the literary elite, Anne was using her own talents to make her way up in life and achieve her goals. Anne had scored a pretty sweet gig as a dancer in one of Fifi Monte Carlo's main acts. And once her mother passed, she gladly threw herself into her new work. The club was frequented by the wealthy and the famous, and when William Woodward Sr. spotted Anne, he was quite taken with her up on that stage. Which, by the way, one of the things that they mentioned in the book is that she had like this like sexy little bunny outfit, like before Playboy was Playboy. Mm-hmm. This this makes me think of like that whole look. Huh. Uh, maybe I saw. I did look at photos of Anne when he first brought up this case. Oh, okay. Yeah, there um, might be I, one of yeah, her. Yeah, I think I remember seeing it, actually. William Woodward Sr. was very taken with her up on the stage, but there was one little problem. Mr. Woodward was already taken himself. William was a prominent member of a banking family and had even earned his own separate reputation as a successful racehorse breeder. At this point in his life, William had grown somewhat distant from his wife, Elsie, and even the rest of his family. Everything in his everyday life seemed to annoy him. Horses and pretty young women seemed to be the only things that truly made him happy. When William saw Anne dance in her show one night, he invited her to his table for a drink. Their relationship progressed quickly. But from the start, Anne knew she wasn't going to break up a millionaire's marriage. But still, William spent time with her and gave her lavish gifts. Scandal had damaged the family's good name once before. He was not about to let his affections for a showgirl damage the family reputation. But William found a, a strange other way to keep Anne around. He introduced her to his son, William Woodward Jr., who, for the sake of keeping everyone everyone straight, will refer to by his nickname, Billy. Okay. So Billy was an eligible bachelor, but it seemed he didn't have much interest in dating. William suspected that his son had not been schooled in the ways of women and was likely a virgin. Others suspected that Billy may even have been a homosexual. So he asks Anne, one of the sexiest ladies he knows, to seduce his son and set him on the right path. This and is strange, disgusting. I'm sorry. I know. Isn't I this super gross that like he's like smooching on this dancer and then he realizes like, well, I can't. I can't give up my marriage, you know, for appearances sake and whatnot. Um, but maybe I can still keep you close by if I introduce you to my son. And like the thought of like, oh, what if like the, what if 
they did it and then then she and his son do it like i don't want to think about that and i'm sure that they don't want to think about it either right and see you went there i was thinking more along the lines of like this is gross because one what does it matter if he's a virgin and two different time different place but like oh no he's a gay shocked like clutch my pearls right Um, (laughs) i mean and and when you're a a prominent family you know these are the kind of little like family secrets that you don't want to come out so right if he can do something to maybe like set him set him quote unquote straight you Mm -hmm. know um it might prevent a future scandal so strangely uh strangely enough the plan kind of worked so anne knew she could never have william but she was more than happy to settle for his son and billy liked anne too anne was different from all of the stuffy prim and proper women that traveled in his in his social circles And she knew how to have a good time. She was strong-willed, and he liked that. They both had a love for horse racing, and the fact that having a relationship with Anne would be the ultimate act of rebellion was just icing on the cake. So because at this time, he was probably expected to marry some other socialite that uh from some well-to-do family like falling in love with a showgirl yeah and and, like getting in serious with her like oh my gosh like his mother would have been furious Mm -hmm, i imagine and and of course she did end up being absolutely annoyed with this decision So they quickly fell into a passionate affair, and before long, they were engaged. William was surprised. He had hoped to just keep Anne in proximity to himself, not welcome her into the family. So it's like the the plan worked too well. Mm -hmm. But Billy was smitten, and nothing his parents said or did could change his mind. His mother, Elsie, disapproved from the very start of their affair a feeling that would not wear off for as long as she lived. Before the two were wed, she even hired a private detective to look into Anne's past. Like, this was such a weird time where, like, you would just hire detectives to be like, like, oh, this showgirl, look into her past. And I mean, honestly, I don't think think it's that uncommon today, to be honest. Like, if you have the money and you want to find out about who your daughter or son is dating... You can hire a PI, right? Right. But now it's so easy. You just look on social media. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) The report did nothing to ease her concerns over Anne. As far as she was concerned, she was a harlot who had associated with disreputable people her entire life and had unappealing origins. Elsie shared her findings with Billy and she warned him that she would be a stain on the family and would bring nothing but trouble. William agreed with his wife that marrying Anne would be a mistake, 
But Billy only grew more certain that he wanted to be with Anne, and he enjoyed their relationship even more because it riled his parents up so. Mm. Being with Anne showed that Billy was his own man and that he would make his own decisions. They ended up going forward with the wedding, but Anne was sat down by Elsie for a little chat. If she was going to become part of the family, she was going to have to learn the customs of her new social circles. If she was going to get along, she was going to have to change so much about herself, take on the refinement of the upper class, and of course, ditch her job at Fifi's. Hmm. Anne was willing to give up, give up the job and take on the new attitude, but it would be to the detraction of her husband's happiness. For better or worse, Anne was part of the family. It was a mistake that would one day cost Billy his life. Now, at the beginning of their marriage, the newlyweds seemed happy enough. They went to parties, took vacations, and dined intimately. But despite these romantic escapades, rumors of Billy's potential homosexuality still persisted. And although the family was hoping that Anne's novelty would wear off quickly, she was locked in. She had the ring, and she was expecting her first child shortly after they wed. Their life together was almost cut short, though, by World War II. Billy was enlisted in the Navy and had been aboard the USS Liscombe Bay on November 24, 1943, when it was attacked by a Japanese submarine. More than 600 ser service members were killed in the attack, but Billy was one of just 272 to survive. Was that at Pearl Harbor or a different attack? Uh, no, this was just out in oh. the in the field of war. Okay. <clears throat> so this brush with death inspired him to live life to the fullest. When he returned from battle, he was no longer interested in living the life his family had bestowed upon him. He began acting more like a playboy and enjoying his status as an heir. Suddenly, he was ambivalent toward his wife and his work at the family bank. Still, Anne stood by her man. She gave birth to William III, a.k.a. Woody, in 1944, and then their son James came along in January of 1948. Their little family lived in the Woodward home, which I'm sure Anne was not exactly thrilled to be living under Elsie's roof. Oh, oh, of course not. Yeah, living with your in-laws, especially when they're like rich and disapproving of mm. everything you do. Yeah. Uh, and Billy seemed to have no intention to leave or settle down and be a decent family man. Anne was fed up with living with her in-laws, and she pressured her husband to buy them their own house. Billy finally <laughs> caved and, and bought them a lovely brownstone on East 73rd Street in New York City. But just as he finalized the sale, he was off with friends on a sailing trip. But the home was a dream come true for Anne. She had servants a house in Manhattan, an estate on Long Island, and access to the kind of society people she had always dreamed of mingling with. 
There was absolutely nothing she wouldn't do to ensure that she kept this lifestyle. But Anne had to fight for her place in the social scene. Not shockingly, there were rumors about the, about the bombshell with the mysterious pedigree. While both she and William Sr. did their best to keep their past relationship a secret, some who were close to them somehow knew. Because of the cloud of suspicion around Anne and the fact that she had not come from some well-to-do family, many of her peers in high society kept her at a comfortable distance. No one seemed willing to take her under their wing and show her the way of the upper crust. And whenever Anne had a misstep, there was always someone there to pounce and point out her failings. Things were catty at the top of the social food chain. It was up to Anne to learn on her own, and she transformed herself, training in etiquette and speech. She even took to learning French to take on a more refined air. But for despite her, like, all I'm, her like, I'm sure her doing all these things probably might have even, like, what am I trying to say? Uh, not angered, but, like, upset those people more that were judging her because they're like oh look at her trying to be one of us type of thing right right uh i'm i'm sure that there was some accusations of being like oh look at the actress trying to be one of us like you'll never truly be one of right. us right yeah no matter how much you study mm -hmm. no matter how much you improve you're like gate when you walk no matter how your courtesies when we come to your house like you're you're still below us is what yeah I, she was probably which treated is, that way. which is just so sad because it's like oh you literally are just considering this a club that you're born into and mm -hmm. no one can ever be an outsider and, and like attain the same equal status sure but despite all of her efforts, she could never fully please the society people, and because she had worked so hard to change herself, she had erased so many of the carefree, outspoken qualities that Billy had loved when he met her. So this is really a lose-lose situation. Like, you're kind of masking the the things that your your husband fell in love with you for, and then still no matter how hard you're trying the society people are not accepting you yeah exactly so this made billy believe that everything had just been an act to make him fall in love with her he saw what she did as a plot to win him over and once she had him she showed her true colors as nothing more than a social climber this became a major sticking point in their relationship Billy had felt used, and he hated to admit that his mother had been right about Anne all along. Instead of dumping her, though, he chose to humiliate his wife whenever he could. When she would try to speak beyond her understanding, he never passed up the opportunity to humiliate her in front of their friends, even going so far as to berate her for every little thing. So at this point, it's becoming a very emotionally abusive relationship. So her husband, who should be trying to support her, uh, is basically trying to cut her down every chance that he gets. 
So Anne would meet her husband's harsh criticisms with promises to do better, and every time she would redouble her efforts to attempt to make herself more perfect. But one thing that she would never compromise on was fashion. Anne had a knack for style, and she adored wearing beautiful gowns that showed off her voluptuous figure. Even after bearing two children, she still had a figure that would capture men's attention. This, of course, annoyed Billy and became one of the things that he would berate her for. He hurled insults at her, telling her not to flirt so much, not to show so much cleavage like some kind of hooker. His words, not mine. Yep. Different time, different place, different vocabulary. These words were often tossed about in front of company and truly stung. But Anne always met the jabs with the promises to find more suitable attire. The cracks continue to form in their marriage, but Billy always seemed to try to gloss over their differences by pacifying Anne with expensive gifts from jewelry to property. These, of course, were only band-aids for their marital problems, and their squabbles <clears throat> intensified. It is during this period that Billy became involved with a woman he had known since childhood, a refined woman worthy of his class, Princess Marina Torlonia. And Billy reconnected and became romantically involved uh, despite Billy being married to Anne and Marina being married to tennis pro Francis Frank Shields. Marina would be a sure rubber stamp approval from the Woodward parents, but only if Anne could be swayed to grant him a divorce. The affair seemed serious. Marina left her husband and moved from the West Coast to New York City to be closer to Billy. The fighting between Anne and Billy soon became physical, and Anne had the bruises to prove it. While traversing this difficult time, she took solace in her physician, Dr. John Pudding. He was not only a confidant, but also her supplier for medications to ease her many ailments like migraines, insomnia, and depression. She also found a very good friend and ally in a divorce attorney, Sol Rosenblatt. During this period of time when, the, when a divorce seemed imminent, Billy actually changed his will to leave Anne largely out of the picture for most of his estate. But he neglected to tell her that. Meanwhile, Anne was being offered $2 million by her in-laws to sign the divorce paperwork which that was the equivalent of $24.9 million that in today's insane. money. That's insane. Like, how could you not accept? Honestly, given her situation, I'd take it and run. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad chunk of change for a few years of marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think for her, it was probably that stability. I mean, that's what she craved her whole childhood you know, she was bouncing around all over the place. Uh, you know, always the family was struggling to get by. Uh, 
even if you're handed a big chunk of change, she probably wanted the stability that having a husband gave her. Yeah. And also, a... like, why settle for two million when obviously <laughs> the family's got multiple millions? Right. To further add to the intrigue of the divorce, both spouses hired detectives to spy on the other. So Billy even went so far as to have his wife's phone tapped. Through all of this surveillance, Billy found out that Anne had had an affair of her own while the two were separated, which surprisingly spiked his interest. It became that old trope, like when one dog has a bone and the other wants it, and when he has it, he loses interest in it. Uh, so the fact that Anne had had, an, had the interest of another man was like, oh, well, maybe she is worth keeping. I mean, if another man is interested in her, maybe I shouldn't get rid of her. Billy realized that he still found Anne attractive and the two would inevitably fall back in bed together. She still had a hold on him. In a surprise change of heart, Billy decided not to divorce Anne and began distancing himself from Marina. But okay. don't worry, don't worry. Uh, Marina still ended up having a total of four marriages um, aside from this little affair, so I'm sure she managed to move on just fine. Billy found it was far more convenient to remain married to Anne and continue to have his affairs on the side. When people asked, he just told them that she had asked for too much money. In this agreement, Anne would keep her security, but she would endure the silent humiliation knowing that her husband would have other lovers and no doubt others would hear about it. Now, just because the Woodwards had negotiated a marital truce, though, didn't mean peace between them. On Anne's 34th birthday, the couple hosted a party, and in the wake of that celebration, in the middle of the night, the house was a ruckus, with Anne scratching Billy's face, and Billy, in turn, giving her a black eye. The police were called to this altercation, and once again, the couple was at odds. But a week later, the couple reconciled on a Caribbean vacation, and everything was picture perfect again until the next social function, the whole cycle starting all over again. So it really seemed like it was a vicious cycle, especially when they would go out in public together especially when they'd be drinking in public together. Uh-huh. It was it was not a good cycle. You know, there's a lot going on there. It's it's a very tumultuous uh relationship, perfect I feel. Perfect word for it. Yeah. A lot of he did this to me, well I will humiliate him here. And then she humiliated me there, so I'm going to get come back here, right? Yeah. A lot of tit-for-tat in this relationship. Yes. So in 1953, William Woodward Sr. passed away and left his estate, including the Bel Air Stable, which produced the many famous racehorses, to his son, Billy. Anne was quick to get involved with the affairs at Bel Air, which, of course, annoyed Billy's mother, who insisted he put a stop to it, 
especially since they were gaining great notoriety with one of their best horses yet, which is that thoroughbred named Nashua that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. The fame of the Woodwards increased and Anne was emerging as a bit of a style icon. And Billy as the proud racehorse owner. But behind the scenes, both of them were drinking heavily, again aggravating the simmering tensions between them. They were trapped in a cycle of affairs, followed by reconciliation, followed by public spats. Anne particularly struck a nerve at a party when she shouted at her, at her husband, why don't you just bring a man into our bed? That's what you want anyway. This, of course, only exacerbated the rumors that he had been or that had been swirling for years about Billy. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that's kind of a jab at both of them in a way. Right. But, but uh, mainly him, obviously. Mm -hmm. The affairs continued to happen on the sidelines of their marriage, though. And there seemed to be a double standard. Billy's affairs, while technically were frowned upon, were not given the same treatment as Anne's affairs, which were scrutinized uh, far more harshly. Anne was being pushed to the limit between her husband that didn't respect her, a mother-in-law that despised her and nitpicked her, and the social pressures around her. On the evening of October 29th, 1955, Billy and Anne Woodward attended a lavish party on Long Island's Gold Coast, hosted by George and Edith Baker in honor of their guests, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Anne had a particular affinity for the Duchess, Wallace Simpson, because she saw a lot of herself reflected in her. Anne and Wallace often received negative press coverage and were not particularly well-liked by the families they married into. So, of course, Wallace Simpson had uh, married, I believe he was, I can't remember if it was Edward VII, but at the time he had been King of England, but she was a divorcee and he couldn't remain King and marry a divorced woman. So he chose to marry her over the crown. Oh, so okay. Was... See, I, I don't know much about like the Royal crown or anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to follow that. So that's interesting. I didn't know that someone actually like did not take over that position for love i never knew yeah it's it's one of those things that is a very interesting little tidbit of history just because yeah it was so rare like you gave up everything yeah i would assume all the power just, you know not knowing much about it that people would choose the crown over love rather than love over the crown so yeah good right, for him and good for her <laughs> I mean, especially with uh, the British royal family, that there is a a long, long tradition of like duty yes. above everything. Mm -hmm. um, so, and the fact that Wallace Simpson was an American and a divorcee, um, I think Anne really appreciated that uh, that she was like her own woman and that she wasn't going to conform yeah other course. people's standards so she she saw them both as being kind of outsiders to this 
very closely guarded high society. Mm -hmm. Now, the Woodwards and the Windsors were friendly with each other and had bonded over their mutual love of horse racing. Of course, gotta love like royals at the with their big fancy hats at those, <laughs> right. those at you know the the big races. Yeah. So they would see each other several times each year, and this party was a typical high society affair for all of them. But on the way to the party, Anne and Billy had gotten into one of their typical spats. Billy had recently gone to Kansas to see about a private plane that he was or that was being manufactured for him. This would allow him to fly between their home on Long Island and his Bel Air stud and farm in Maryland. Now, the purchase of the plane wasn't the issue. It was the fact that while Billy was in Kansas, he took the opportunity to go poking into Anne's past. You see, the plane was being man manufactured in none other than Pittsburgh, Kansas, mm. Anne's hometown. So Anne was upset that her husband had gone digging up information about her humble beginnings and family connections that seemed distasteful to a woman of her stature. Kansas had been a sore spot for her because she had struggled so hard to get out of there. Billy, Billy, though, seemed to relish in holding this information over her. He knew that he could use some of this uh, newly learned info to blackmail Anne into a divorce. Again, mm. sounds like divorce might be on the table here. Yeah. He had once thought that reconciling their marriage was the best thing to do, but now Billy had grown tired of Anne and if he leveraged her own past against her, he could be rid of her without having to give her a dime. When he revealed his detective work to Anne, he struck fear into her heart. Her heart. He planned to take the children and kick her out of the house and send her back to Kansas. Anne wasn't sure her husband could stoop so low, but could she really afford to take that chance? The other topic that had added another edge to the evening was the fact that there was a prowler on the loose in the area. Over the preceding weeks, there had been a string of break-ins in the area. Now, many of the lavish homes in the neighborhood were only occupied part-time as their owners were usually established elsewhere. This made these estates prime targets for someone who might be looking for some fast cash. The Woodward's mm -hmm. property had actually recently been breached. Uh, someone had broken a window to the pool house and eaten some canned food that was stored inside. The topic of the prowler came up quite a bit in conversation that night. Anne sounded worried while Billy sounded almost excited at the thought of defending his life and property. He had even brought a handgun with him to the party and kept it locked in his car's glove compartment. I know this seems like such a super overreaction, especially since there was no indication that the burglar had been violent. Both, both Billy were well-versed in guns, and they had quite a collection of them. Notably, Anne had even learned to big game hunt on a past 
and had killed a particularly large tiger on a hunt there. So both of the Woodwards knew their way around a gun, and multiple people would later testify that both of them were agitated about the possibility of a break-in. One acquaintance at the party even went so far as to tell Anne that she was becoming obsessive about the topic. To this point, she confessed that she was so worried that she slept with a loaded shotgun next to her bed. Mm. All of this prowler talk cast a foreboding shadow over the evening. The couple returned home in the early morning hours of October 30th, both wound up over over each other and arguing after a night of drinking. Billy took his pistol out of the glove compartment and together they searched the house for signs of a break-in. Everything appeared to be in place, but for good measure, each of them took a gun from their collection and brought it to their respective individual bedrooms. In Anne's bedroom, she had everything she needed, radio, water bottle, flashlight, cigarettes, a telephone, and most critically, her pillbox with her medications inside. Her friend, Dr. Pudding, was generous with his prescription pad and gave her different medications for the many pains and ailments that she suffered from. Anne's nightly routine included swallowing a handful, a handful of pills that would both numb her pain and help her to sleep. So on this night, she was perhaps a little intoxicated, heavily medicated, and armed. Not a great combination when you add the paranoia that had been stoked all evening, each one of them egging the other on. Uh-huh. Like, that's a combination for all sorts of disordered thoughts, right? Oh, exactly. And that, I believe, is what is building to the... Uh, the climax here. Now, while Anne medicated and removed her makeup, Billy readied himself for a shower. From here, Anne went to bed until she awoke with a start. Now, Anne heard a crash not long after falling asleep. Her dog, a poodle named Sloppy, which I think is a oh. funny name for a dog. Mm-hmm growled at the noise the hallway was dark with only the tiniest sliver of moonlight cutting through she could hear footsteps down the hallway and could see the outline of a figure fear gripped her so she took aim and unloaded both barrels of her shotgun the figure crumpled at the other end of the hallway when she Turned on the lights, it was not some stranger lying in a pool of his own blood, but her husband. Billy usually slept in the nude, and this evening was no exception. He had emerged from his bedroom, as, and if Anne had turned on the lights, she would have seen immediately that it was Billy, au natural, at the other end of the hallway. Anne screamed when she had realized what she had done. She was so distraught that she ran to the gun cabinet and threw her extra shells inside. She claimed that she did this so that she would not be tempted to take her own life in the wake of her guilt. She then ran to the phone, but found herself utterly paralyzed to try and call for help. 
Perhaps she was already trying to form her defense, or maybe intrusive thoughts were already racing that maybe she would be better off without her husband, who had threatened her with the, with divorce and destitution so many times before. Mm-hmm. At 2.07 a.m., though, a call was placed by a hysterical woman asking for help. She was nearly incoherent, but thankfully, another call made around the same time by a man named Steve Smith, who was working uh, on the grounds nearby, allowed operators to pinpoint where they needed to send emergency services. After finally telling the police where she was, Anne made another su surprising call, this time to her lawyer, Sol Rosenblatt. Never a good sign when the next call that you make is to your lawyer. Exactly. The first person you should call is 911. And if it's not 911, uh, it is like the fire station, not your lawyer to get an alibi. Yeah, it's that that call is a little suspicious. When authorities arrived, they found Anne draped over her husband's body, crying out, My darling, my darling. Strangely, the responding officers took no notice of anyone else in the house, even though there were servants, the children, and the dog, but none of them were making a peep. Hmm. An ambulance was summoned, but it was already too late. Billy had slipped away. Anne's shots had been accurate and fatal. Uh, which, by the way, the, like, so this is a, a point that I was kind of like, wow, she was such a good shot in the dark. Uh, isn't that a little suspicious that like, oh, her aim was so precise. Yes, I agree. Uh, but then I was actually talking about this with my partner and uh, he informed me that a shotgun is actually the perfect weapon in a situation like this because you don't have to be accurate because basically it kind of like the the uh, projectile is kind of just like explodes apart like it's buckshot so it's a yes. lot of little projectiles right. so you don't necessarily have to hit a specific part to do damage you're kind of spreading a wide net of of uh destruction basically yeah basically um i grew up my dad and my brothers were hunters so i know that like when you hunt a deer in the wild you use buckshot because deer run so you want those kind of go everywhere right um, so you have a better chance of hitting a right. target yeah and if it's up close like in a house Mm -hmm. Um, all those buckshot are gonna go straight to the straight to the target because it's up close. It's not far away. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So, the more you know. <laughs> when they questioned Anne as to what had happened, she confessed confessed that she had mistaken him for a burglar, and that she claimed he was armed. She was inconsolable. At nearly 3 a.m., Dr. Francis Moore, who was on scene because he worked for the coroner's office, examined Anne. To calm her, Dr. Moore gave Anne a sedative called Thorazine, which completely clouded her memory and knocked her out. Which is like, 
you're trying to get information out of this woman and instead you offer her a sedative yeah it's like on top of her other the crime we want to know what happened so let's put her out to sleep give her some drugs when she wakes up she's foggy can't really remember what's happening sounds like a great plan yeah So this move would later be criticized because you don't just give a potential murder suspect a drug that might cloud their ability to recount what had just happened. An hour later, a nurse came to assist in Anne's care. She removed Anne's prescriptions so as to ensure that she would not try to overdose. Mm. The following investigation was tinged with bias. The district attorney, Frank Gulato, it's a tough one. It's a very Italian <laughs> Gulata. I'm going to go with Gulata. Yes. Was well known in the social circles of the area's wealthy class. He had heard plenty of negative stories about Anne over the years, like that she was a social climbing gold digger and he had already made up his mind that she was guilty of Billy's murder. Mm-hmm. It didn't help that some of the things and cl- and claimed were not adding up. She had claimed that the figure was that she saw was armed, but upon investigation, Billy's shotgun and his pistol were still in his bedroom. It was also determined that there was a 20 minute lapse in time between when the shots were fired and when smith heard her screams and why hadn't the children who were sleeping upstairs heard anything and then there were the bruises Anne had grown quite adept at covering them and when dr moore had tried examining her she refused to let him check for signs of abuse hmm so lots of little things not lining up right things that are are making you go hmm now in the wake of the shooting everyone had an opinion many thought the woodwards were headed for divorce but the thought of murder had not crossed their minds the duke and duchess of windsor were shocked as they thought that they were an ideal couple everyone at the party was questioned including the duke and duchess and investigators got the full backstory of gossip, including the fact that each spouse had hired a private investigator to spy on the other. Friends of Billy were also quick to point out that there had to have been some ambient light for, from somewhere in order for her to be able to see the figure, and that Anne should have recognized the general shape and size of her husband, who was naked, freshly out of the shower. Like you should have been able to see at least some sort of quality that you would have recognized. Yeah, like a height or a width, something. Yeah, which is a reasonable point to make, I think. So those same people also knew of the divorce threats, and they suspected that it was better to be a widow than a divorcee. Mm. But then there was the matter of the money. Billy was actually worth more to her alive than dead. Most of his millions would be tied up in a trust for his children, leaving very little for Anne. She would have been better off in a divorce settlement. 
Now, this was pointed out by some of Anne's rare supporters. Other wealthy neighbors had had small items stolen from their homes, such as radios and clothes. So it's not like Anne had fabricated a fake threat in order to justify killing her husband. But it did, in fact, certainly help her credibility when the prowler was apprehended. A 23-year-old German immigrant named Paul Wirtz had been on parole after burglarizing homes. When he stopped reporting to his parole officer, it was not hard to believe that the young delinquent had returned to his old ways, breaking into homes, stealing food, cash, small items, and he even stole some cars. A bulletin went out, and by following the chain of stolen cars, they were able to pinpoint the area where they expected to find him. A couple of patrolmen spotted the suspect while he was eating lunch, and when he tried to get away in a stolen car, one of the officers fired a warning shot, and shortly thereafter, he gave himself up. When they went through his belongings, they found all sorts of jewelry, high-end clothing, and even a gun and some knives. This was especially vindicating for Ant's case because the burglar was indeed armed, though thankfully no one was hurt during any of his break-ins. When he was questioned, he admitted that he had cased the Woodward estate and broken in and eaten some of the stored canned food. And when pressed later, he even confessed to being there the night of the murder. The noise he made attempting to break in may very well have been the catalyst for everything else. This helped Anne's case tremendously, and Anne needed all of the help she could get. Her husband was the only thing keeping her life together. Being Mrs. Woodward was basically her career, and now here she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Dr. Pudding kept Anne heavily sedated, and the children had been sent away to be with their grandparents. She was drugged up and alone. She had to be hospitalized and could not even attend her husband's funeral, which was held at St. James Church in New York City on November 2nd, 1955. Two days later, the district attorney submitted all of their findings to, the, to a grand jury. While awaiting the results, Elsie visited Anne in the hospital, but, but it certainly wasn't to offer support or sympathy or forgiveness. What she offered was an ultimatum. If she gave up the children, she could make the whole mess go away. Many in the press and, and their social circles were insisting that Anne had deliberately murdered Billy, but Elsie suggested that she could make all of that disappear. Elsie had already picked out a boarding school in Switzerland to send the boys to. She also took the opportunity to show Anne Billy's revised will, which left Anne with the bare minimum that was legally required to her by the state. She was able to keep their homes, jewelry, furniture, and an allowance of cash, but it was a pittance compared to what she would have had. Elsie had all the cards, and there weren't many moves that she had left to make. Not seeing any alternative, Anne allowed Elsie to send her boys to boarding school, 
and now, weeks after the death of their father, the boys were exiled from the remainder of their family. So this is a real tragedy for the children because they're not getting the loving family support that they need at this time. Like, they just lost their father, and... Uh, instead they're just being kind of shipped off like they're an inconvenience and again just like with uh, Truman Capote's like life of not really being wanted by his mother or his father um, this really does some psychological damage to the kids right I mean they of course are victims too yeah in the situation Mm mm-hmm The grand jury listened to more than 30 witnesses, including some weighed in that they thought Anne was just giving the performance of a lifetime and that she had rehearsed everything, set up the whole scene for premeditated murder. But that proved to be a hard sell. After more than nine and a half hours of testimony, the jurors came to a unanimous decision. They voted not to indict her for murder. The district attorney wasn't pleased, but abided by the findings. When the press tried to get a comment out of Anne, all she could say was, I'll never recover. For some, though, even if the grand jury had found her not guilty, many in the public had judged her as being guilty. Being a self-made widow earned her very little sympathy, and the doors that had once granted her access to the world of New York's high society, slammed in her face. She had only been tolerated by many of those people because of her association with Billy, and now that he was gone, there was no need to continue to welcome her. She became an instant pariah. There was no one she could fall back to. New York society shunned her so she had no other option than to exile herself and hope that one day she would be able to squeeze her way back in. She spent years in exile in Europe uh, on the advice of Elsie Woodward. She lived comfortably, but was persistently miserable and turned to drugs and alcohol. Aww. But it is at this stage of life that she crosses paths with the other star of this story, Truman Capote. In 1956, Anne was dining at a prestigious restaurant in St. Moritz. Across the table from her was Klaus von Bülow, a handsome playboy who was a socialite himself. Von Bülow had a colorful past of his own, with rumors of all sorts swirling around him. Later in life, he would be accused of the attempted murder of his wife, but that's a whole other episode. So Anne felt she was in good company to be with someone whose life was more sordid and speculated upon than her own. Truman was also dining at the restaurant and recognized Anne and Klaus. He had, by this point, scored several successes and was making himself out to be quite a celebrity himself. But Truman was absolutely obsessed with society women. In his rise to fame, he had acquired a flock of prominent women of high society, 
including Jackie Kennedy's sister, Lee Radswell, Slim Keith, Gloria Guinness, CZ Guest, Marella Agnelli, and his closest friend of all, Babe Paley. These women were what he called his swans. So when Truman saw that he was dining so close to a headline-grabbing society queen, he just had to get himself involved. Truman had endeared himself to many of his swans with his unique mannerisms, his sharp, biting wit, and his always open ears. He was an absolute sucker for gossip, and he had mastered the art of letting others fill the silence with their private thoughts. The lure of such a subject, a woman who had so recently killed her own husband, now on the town with a notorious playboy, was too tempting for Truman. He stared blatantly, and then, after a while, crossed the room to Anne's table. He knew the encounter was sure to distress and annoy her, which increased his own enjoyment of his hijinks. Truman sat down next to Anne, who immediately stood up, angry that she should be disturbed during her meal. A terse, heated conversation followed, in which Anne, Anne called him a gay slur. It wasn't the first or the last time Truman would be called that, but to be called that by an accused murderer? That bothered him. He shot back, wagging his finger and referring to her as Mrs. Bang Bang. The meeting was short, but Truman would repeat and embellish the story whenever he got the chance. And if there was one thing he was exceptional at, it was making sure that he hurt the ones who hurt him twice as bad. He would, rem he would remember this encounter with Anne, and he'd make sure she lived long enough to regret it. Truman, of course, went on to write some of his biggest successes of all after, after that, with the pinnacle of his success being the nonfiction novel, Cold Blood, which was published in 1965. The book was an ambitious undertaking in which Truman laid out the brutal murder of a family by two desperate men. The book was a smash hit and earned him both fame and accolades. But the subject matter took a toll on him. Seeing the perpetrators executed especially was hard on him after he had spent so much time getting to know them and writing their story, especially since he saw a bit of himself in one of the perpetrators. The project took a lot out of Truman, but he also enjoyed celebrating his success and threw one of the most legendary parties of all time, the Black and White Ball. After such a success, he knew the expectations would be high for whatever came next. The answer was a grand novel he had planned called Answered Prayers. The novel, according to Capote, would be a complete epic and would span decades of time. What he didn't reveal, though, was that he planned on using all of the gossip provided to him by his high society swans as material too. Even Anne Woodward was to be a character in the book. 
uh, though all of the names would be changed, though de the descriptions would be spot-on accurate. So everyone would know exactly who he was talking about. Truman got a hefty advance from his publisher for answered prayers, but deadlines kept passing him by. He struggled greatly to get his groove back, and his drinking and occasional drug use didn't help. Allegedly, he wrote hundreds of pages of manuscript, but his editors never saw them. The late 60s was not a particularly productive time for Truman, but as the 70s got underway, it seemed that he was ready to tease the reading public with a sample from his supposedly forthcoming novel. Truman was fascinated by people like Anne Woodward. She had schemed her way into society much like his own mother had. Both women devoted their lives to meeting the right people and gaining their acceptance. Truman himself had even done this very thing, ingratiated himself to the elite women of New York, and in return, he had been revered like some kind of exotic pet. But nearly two decades after Anne had insulted him at St. Moritz, Truman was ready to enact his revenge. He decided he would publish select chapters from his upcoming book in a magazine. Esquire was definitely interested. His publisher, who had grown a bit irritated with him, wasn't thrilled, but they were willing to allow a genius to work his own way work in his own way if it meant a big payoff later. First came the story Unspoiled Monsters, which was a novella-length selection that was published in May of 1974. Many people pointed out that it just seemed like thinly-veiled autobiography, to which Truman would reply that the main character wasn't him, but wasn't not him, which I find so incredibly annoying. Uh, with his next excerpt, though, he promised it would be a killer, and indeed it was. Truman had a story called La Cote Basque, 1965, named after the high-end New York City restaurant that catered to that um, high society clientele. The story's main character was a woman named Anne Hopkins, an obvious stand-in for Anne Woodward. The story promised to be salacious. Once again, Esquire was willing to give the story a platform. It was all but certain to dredge up everything negative about the real Anne, which was exactly the kind of public skewering that Truman preferred. Some people kill with swords, he liked to say, and some people kill with words. In this case, he was certainly the latter. In September 1975, acquaintances of Anne Woodward informed her that Truman Capote had sold his story about Anne to Esquire, and it was set to go to print in November. Someone even managed to get Anne an advanced copy of this story. The story that Truman wrote had all of the same details as the real-life story, but he made his Anne a vicious, trigger-happy ha tramp. She was devastated by the portrayal and was shocked to find that she was despised by the man that she had only met briefly once 20 years prior, 
She barely remembered the spat that they had in the restaurant. But Truman had held a grudge for decades. Once again, she could feel her world closing in on her. She had tried to put her husband's death behind her and salvage some kind of life from the ashes of the past. But now she would be torn down and brought back to square one. As the date of publication neared, Anne felt she needed to be far away, but made no efforts to escape to Europe or insulate herself in any other way. Her anxieties simply became overwhelming. Days before the publication, she withdrew into her medications, read the newspapers, and clung to any morsels of information her few remaining contacts could acquire for her. Then, one day in October, she put on her favorite dress, did her, did her makeup, and ingested a fistful of pills and climbed into bed. Interesting enough, the pills that Anne took, second all, were the same ones that Truman's mother, Nina, had taken and ended her life. Anne died October 10th, 1974. When her mother-in-law was asked about her death, she said, that's that. She shot my son and Truman just murdered her. When Truman was asked about it, he didn't seem to feel any remorse at all. He is quoted as saying, I think the only person a writer has an obligation to is himself. The tragedies kept coming in the wake of Truman's story. In 1976, Anne's son James committed suicide after years of struggling with his mental health after serving in Vietnam. The remaining Woodward son, William, became a journalist, ran for public office, and followed in the family business of banking. But after his own marriage began to unravel, he fell into a deep depression, and in 1999, he stepped through the kitchen window of his apartment and fell 14 stories to his death. For his part in the whole mess, Truman Capote was not unscathed either. His story, published in Esquire, stole, stole private information from all of his closest female society friends. He spilled all of the tea in this story, and because of that, he lost nearly every friend he had. A couple of people who didn't get quite uh, quite a bad treatment in the story stood by him, but his closest friends, notably Babe Paley, who, who was arguably his closest confidant, chose to never speak to him again, even after repeated letters and calls. He had gotten his petty revenge, but at great cost to himself. It almost seems that he meant to hurt those close to him because he never really fully believed that they truly loved him as anything more than a fascination and a passing fancy. He chose to hurt them before he before they could ever hurt him by growing tired of him. Truman spent the end of his career drinking heavily and doing lots of cocaine and producing very little material. He never finished his supposed masterwork, Answered Prayers, even though he had once claimed it was 80% complete. His health began to fail him. He suffered falls and even a seizure. By 1984, 
there was nothing left for Truman to give. He was depleted physically and mentally. He had driven his best friends away, and the ones that remained were very few indeed. On August 25th, 1984, his friend Joanne Carson, wife of Tonight Show host Johnny Carson, found Truman dead. He was only 59 years old. In the end, this was a tragedy for everyone. The Woodward family lost a son, Anne lost a husband, and really her whole family. And Truman lost the women that were his closest friends and confidants. While there does seem to be some unanswered questions, in my opinion, I think Anne was too under the influence of alcohol and medications to truly be responsible for her husband's death. The truth of what happened, though, that night is known only to Anne, and her secrets are left with her. And while Truman was certainly a genius, he squandered his gifts on drugs, alcohol, and petty revenge, largely because he couldn't accept that anyone could ever truly love him as he was. And that is the story of Anne Woodward and Truman Capote. Well, very well told. Um, I knew Truman Capote, but I never heard of Anne Woodward before. Um, maybe I came across her in like some articles, but the name didn't stick out. But it's it's great to know that there is history behind the Capote uh, death, because I didn't know any of that. So thank you for bringing that to the table. Yeah, um, it would be really cool to go over. Um the both like the murder story that story of in cold blood and then also capote's um interaction with the whole the whole story that would make a really great episode so maybe someday down the road we can yeah, get maybe we'll get around to that um but also i just feel bad for everyone involved in this because sure maybe Anne killed him but also she was in a tough spot. She needed mental health. She needed someone to swoop in and, you know, alleviate or help to alleviate all of her mental issues and societal issues going on. And then also the Capote family, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they were toxic. I just feel, as I said earlier, it was very tumultuous. Like yeah. they were both coming from not stable places. And if you have people not coming from, you know, broken places, put them together, it can't be fixed, right? Yeah, uh, and and that's the thing, too, is that I I think uh, Truman Capote saw Anne Woodward and very much saw his own mother reflected back at him. And he couldn't, he could never get the... uh, you know, the revenge, like the the bad feelings he had toward his mother out out uh like he could never take that on his actual mother. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this was a little bit of projecting. Um, uh, you know, so he saw Anne as as uh very similar to his own mother and he wanted to just destroy her. Yeah. Um, I can see the way that. he never could for his own mother. Yeah, like and and I see that maybe he didn't want to do that, but the subconscious was telling him to do that. Same same with Anne, right? 
I mean, she was always wanting more. She was rejected by his family, by society. So maybe that also fueled her to do the actions that she did. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, we can just send out a PSA, like, check your mental health. <laughs> um, right, yeah. And it's, you know, it's the... not what's happening right now in the present everything you lived through is contributing to your mental health right now. Well, um, once again, I wanted to plug this wonderful book that was my source. I know I said at the top of the show, but I think it's worth mentioning again. The book is called Deliberate Cruelty by Roseanne Montillo. So check it out. It's in bookstores now. It was a fantastic read. And if you enjoyed this episode, you enjoyed this story, there's even more information packed in there. I mean, this episode could have been three hours long <laughs> if I had put every last detail in there. Um, but definitely check out the book. I loved it. Awesome. Well, thank you for reading that book and recognizing it here. And thanks for telling that story. I learned a lot. I didn't know. I did not know about any of this dark past, to be honest. I just knew, like... I'm glad I could I could th throw you a, a curveball surprise. Yeah, like, I knew the names. I saw them, like, in, like, an article that I once read one time many, many years ago. But I didn't know the story of this possible murder and cover-up or self-defense. Who knows? Well, awesome. Thank you so much for listening. I think it's time to wrap this one up. So we will see you next time. And until then, bye. bye.